You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Joining me on the Freedom Pact podcast today, one of my favorite science writers, Andrew Steele. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thanks for having me back a second time. I'm excited. Well, I was just checking before we came on. It's been just over two years um, since you came on the first time, which feels like no time at all to me, which quite, you know, it does, it's quite apt because it reminds me of the fact that I am getting older quite quickly, <laughs> which is uh, perfect for the conversation we're about to have. Um, I guess the best place to start is right with the burning question, and that is, why did Brian Johnson block you on Twitter? And just oh. for everyone listening who doesn't know who this guy is, he's a, I think he's a billionaire um, who's on this quest to live to 120 years old by pumping all his money into all these new, um, you know, all these new tests and all these new, you know, uh, treatments and ideas and techniques to try and live forever why did he block you Andrew well good question and I think it's first you know worth saying that this started out I was genuinely quite fascinated to see his sort of meteoric media rise I actually made a video about him a few months ago and I made it because I saw this viral thread on Twitter it wasn't actually from him it was from another guy it was from a, a marketing consultant who had just done this thread it got over 10,000 retweets all about Brian's incredible routine and I thought this is really fascinating because it's a it's a way of sort of taking the aging biology conversation to the public you know I love talking about anything aging biology related and so he was this guy he was getting loads and loads of press coverage because his lifestyle is just it's, it's crazy so you know he wakes up exactly the same time every morning he doesn't really have to but I think he goes for 5am just to look sort of hardcore <laughs> but then he always makes sure he gets exactly you know eight hours sleep or whatever it is he gets, he's, he's had this 100% sleep score on his whoop strap for the last month and is going on about that but it's when he wakes up you know the, the chaos really starts or I, I say chaos it's, it's really the sort of meticulous order he has dozens of supplements with his breakfast he eats literally the same food every single day um he's got all these things he's, he's using certain drugs that are sort of earmarked as things that might potentially be um related to longevity um it came out i think this week or last week as we record that he's been using his son as a blood boy so this is this idea of transfusing blood from a younger person to an older person to try and slow down their rate of aging so he's doing all these um sort of some cutting edge some sort of slightly low on evidence interventions to try and extend his longevity and when this first started out as i say i was sort of intrigued by it because it was a it was a way to talk to people about longevity and to talk to people about, you know, what are these measurements he's taking? What do they mean? And why is he trying out this particular, you know, combination of supplements or, or uh, drugs or whatever it might be? And I think that the problem with this approach is that it makes you think um, this is something that only, you know, really rich and particularly, I mean, discipline's even the wrong word because it goes beyond that. It's sort of, you know, you, you have to be you have to be quite special to be able to follow this kind of incredible rigid lifestyle and so i think a lot of people looked at this and if you look at the comments on social media when this first started coming up 
Um, there are a lot of people obviously worried about the sort of inequality, the fact that maybe billionaires could buy their way to immortality or something like that. But if you look past those comments, you then see a lot of people going, oh my, you know, oh my God, I'd never want to live like this. Like if this is what it takes to live to 120, I'm checking out. I'd rather live 80 good years than 120 years the same way this guy does. So I sort of trying to, you know, use that to make a bit of the conversation around longevity. But the point when my opinion started to switch a bit on him was when it became clear that I, I really think this is a money-making enterprise as far as he's concerned. So, you know, obviously he's an entrepreneur. I think he's worth about $400 million because he sold his payment company to PayPal or eBay or something like that for $800 million a few years ago. So he's a very, very wealthy guy, you know, very talented businessman. But I really think that this is another business opportunity as far as he's concerned because he started tweeting that he's going to monetize the blueprint. So, you know, I get a lot of responses when I tweet about him saying, oh, you know, he's making all this stuff available for free. His website has his lists of supplements and his doses and all these things and a bit of data that's uploaded there as well. But that actually doesn't seem to me to be the end game. I think he's trying to come up with a way to package this because his website, you know, honestly, it's a bit overwhelming if you've ever scrolled down it. You can just see there's there's so many different things. There's all these measurements. Like if you're not already a bit of a longevity nerd, you've got no idea what this guy's going on about. So what you really want, maybe, is something that costs ten, twenty, fifty dollars a month that can then sort of break it down and you know provide you with the supplements you need to follow this program. So that's clearly something he's going for. He's talking about blueprint. He's talking about another version of it for women. Um, and it's just there are some really strange aspects to the ways he's trying to make money as well. You know, as I said, this guy's worth probably four hundred million dollars is the guess. And yet he's got Amazon affiliate links on his website. Like a lot of the things are, um, so that's obviously a link that you click on it, you go and buy something on Amazon. He gets a, a tiny percentage of the cut of you know what's, what this product is sold for. And then he's also got a lot of like affiliates with other specific companies. So he'll be like, oh, I'm recommending this particular supplement. Use the you know code blueprint20 for 20% off at checkout. And again, you know, we're all familiar with how this works in the world of podcasts, in the world of YouTube. You provide these affiliate links, you get a small kickback. Now, you know, this is a perfectly legitimate thing for people to do if they think, you know, that's that's how it's going to work. But to, to sort of characterize this whole thing as a grand experiment for the improvement of humanity, while at the same time making these, you know, what seem like bizarre pennies on the pound <laughs> compared to someone who's got $400 million, I can't really make sense of it, to be honest. And so I started tweeting at him to get back, you know, to your original question. I started tweeting, you know, quote tweeting him and that sort of thing saying, look, Brian, if I had $400 million, I wouldn't be doing what you're doing. If I wanted to live the longest possible time, even if I was doing it for completely selfish reasons, what I would be doing is investing some of that money in clinical trials. And I think what particularly changed my mind on this is when you're starting to recommend that people follow your protocol, you need some evidence that it works. And a lot of these supplements, they've got evidence in mice, they've perhaps got, got some mechanism where we understand what goes on inside the cells and you drip this particular compound on the cells. We don't know that it makes human beings live longer. We might have a, you know, it might be compelling uh, mechanistic evidence but it's not something where I can go out you know hand on my heart and make a sort of piece of health give it out as a piece of health advice even worse not to the point where I can start actually selling that as you know a supplement a product whatever it might be so I started saying to him look you know Brian why don't you just use some of your 400 million to fund some clinical trials and the absolute classic example I think there's a drug called metformin which we know he takes it's a diabetes drug that I mean a lot of people have probably heard of if you've read my book I talk about metformin quite a bit in there this is a drug that um, was originally obviously prescribed to diabetics but there's some interesting human evidence that suggests it might delay cancer might extend lifespan might delay the aging process overall and there's been this trial called TAME which is targeting aging with metformin that's been um, I think I even wrote in my book that it was about to start but it's been about to start for so long because they're just waiting for the last few tens of millions of funding. It's going to cost about $70 million, this trial. And they've got about half of that down already from various donors. 
but they just need a bit more money to take it over the line. So if you're someone like Brian Johnson, you could really advance the field of longevity science by you know, providing those few extra tens of millions of dollars. And then that would also mean there was some more evidence basis for the stuff that you're recommending, the stuff you're perhaps even selling to consumers. So I started tweeting about this. And um, although Brian claims to love the trolls, he's always quote tweeting the people who say that he's crazy. As soon as you give him any legitimate, uh, you know, scientific evidence-based criticism, well, you seem to get the block button. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I love it, and I, I did really enjoy follow, um, you know, following your, your your Twitter during this time, and I I loved seeing the your tweet pop up the other day. Oh, it might have been on Instagram, where you were um, highlighting. You just mentioned it there. This this idea of him taking blood from his his younger son and and mm. sort of injecting it into himself. I just wonder for everyone out there listening, and, and for me, I really. You know, I'm I'm not a longevity expert by any stretch of the imagination. I, I find it quite hard to understand these things. What was his theory? What what is the theory behind that? Is there any you know is is there is there a sound theory in any sort of way, or is it just sort of pseudoscience at this point? I think this is really genuinely fascinating, and it sort of gets to the core of the problem with a lot of these biohacking things. They're all lying on a spectrum. And that spectrum is from like fully evidence-based clinical trials. We understand how this works. You know, things like exercise, things like optimizing your sleep. We know these are good for you. And so that's like, you know, that's health advice I'd happily dispense. And then we sort of move down this spectrum through the sort of things that have got animal evidence or evidence in these mechanistic studies I talked about where you just you know, drip some chemicals on cells in a dish. All of these are hints that we could do some more extensive human trials, but they aren't like the be all and end all. And then you go further down right into the, you know, you kind of go all the way to the other end of the spectrum to pseudoscience where things are just essentially made up. And I think that... All of this biohacking stuff falls somewhere on that spectrum and normally toward the end where there is at least a little bit of evidence and uh this particular practice of blood exchange has a really fascinating backstory actually so back in 2005 is when the story starts um and it was this rather macabre experiment where they got a couple of uh, rats and they sewed the rats physically together and it was an old ma uh, old rat and a young rat and they did it in such a way as the rats shared a blood supply so their blood was flowing between their two bodies now, it's a slightly bizarre thing to do you might think but there was a sort of rationale behind it the idea was to find if there was anything related to the sort of aging biology going on in the blood that could therefore transport between the two animals and they had some rather incredible results they found that the old rat got essentially biologically younger so they were you know they, they did various measures of biological age they looked at regenerative capacity particularly so they made a tiny little injury in one of the old uh, rats muscles and they found that it healed much faster when it was surgically attached to one of these younger rats but conversely there was a sort of flip effect on the younger rat so it, it did much much worse it was obviously like taking the strain of like looking after this old rat essentially but the problem when you look at that and think okay let's start transfusing blood from young people into old people is there's an awful lot more going on in that experiment than there is in the case of just a blood transfusion um for example the the older rat is gaining the benefit of the younger rat's lungs and heart you know so it's getting a nice oxygenated blood supply and that sort of stuff which isn't really related to compounds in the blood um you might also think you know that the, the older rats often don't eat quite enough because they get they start to lose their appetite as they get older so they're getting a you know balanced diet thanks to the younger rat and actually the scientists even reported that the rats drag each other around the cage when this experiment is done so the young young rats are often obviously more physically active and so you sort of get an enforced exercise program as the older rat in this in this pair so there's all kinds of stuff going on but that said this is a sort of proof of principle this is showing us that there might well be something inside the blood that's worth studying 
And so scientists carried on, you know, trying to understand what that thing might be. There have been various other trials where people have uh, looked at things like drugs to try and suppress some of the proteins that you find in older blood, blood and enhance those proteins that are found in younger blood. Um, scientists have actually done the experiment now where you transfuse young blood into older rats without the rats being joined together. And they find that the effect is much, much less pronounced, possibly even non-existent. So that sort of seems to suggest that maybe this simple idea of transferring blood isn't, you know, isn't going to work in, in that form. But actually the most recent results, which came out in 2022, showed that um, they, they tried diluting older blood. So the sort of um, the preponderance of evidence is now not that young blood contains some magic rejuvenating, you know, powerful chemicals, but that the older blood is full of various kinds of damage or various kinds of, you know, ba bad chemicals, to use a highly scientific term. And so the most effective thing you can do is just dilute those bad chemicals. And so uh, what they did was they got some saline solutions, that's just salty water, it's sort of the classic neutral fluid that you might inject into someone. Often you put a drug in saline when you inject it into your veins, for example. And they got saline and they added a bit of protein called albumin, and this is just the most commonly occurring protein in blood plasma, so that's the liquid part of blood. And they injected that into mice, and they've actually done some very small-scale studies in people as well. And this dilution, where you literally put in effectively salty, proteiny water, which is the simplest thing you could think of, does seem to have some positive health effects. So this research is really much, you know, very much ongoing. It's not as though it's a complete washout, but it's not at the point where we should be recommending that you get a blood transfusion from, from adult to child, and, or from child to adult, I should say. And I think what's really interesting as well is when I was speaking to the scientists who did this research, they said that they thought that uh, the direct blood transfusions, there's a, there's a really sort of almost boring clinical reason this might not work, which is that for safety reasons, transfused blood is usually treated with a detergent, and that's just to kill any you know, germs that might be in the blood. You don't want to be transferring HIV or you know, whatever else it might be that's a bloodborne illness. So they put a bit of detergent into the blood. Obviously, you can't donate blood if you've got HIV, but there are various things that might be a bit more subtle, might go unnoticed. But the problem is that these detergents will probably damage the very proteins that would be being transferred that might provide the benefit. So it's really, really unclear what's going on. You're either putting yourself at an infection risk or you're probably not getting the benefit of the young blood. So clearly this is more complicated. And clearly, you know, this isn't a scalable treatment in the sense that we don't want half the population, the young people, to be you know, constantly having to give blood in order for the older people to take that blood in. So we're going to want to find a pharmaceutical way of replicating this effect. It's fascinating, exciting science, but... It's probably not something that we should, yeah, as I say, recommend people go out and actually do. If I were to play um, devil's advocate on this, um, and I know Brian would love that because he likes to play on the uh, the joke that he's the devil, but um, I think it's it'd be very it's very easy to critique the the science, um, and I, I think that almost every scientific paper always finishes with more research is needed. Yeah, yeah. but isn't there any benefit to to biohackers like brian johnson trying things because surely new research comes from these anecdotal cases and sometimes it might take people like him to try these extreme and wacky things for you know conversations to be had i think so and i, I i'm not completely against this idea i think if he wasn't trying to monetize it i wouldn't be so anti but I think also the way that he structures his program um, is, is it just makes it very, very hard to draw conclusions because we already mentioned, you know, he's taking dozens of supplements. He's taking all these different drugs and he's doing this against a background of, he, you know, when he started his blueprint, he started a really intense exercise regime. He started really paying attention to his sleep. He started eating completely different things. Now, whatever you think of the exact details of this, like um, he starts his day with this green giant smoothie thing with some olive oil and some, you know, this, that and the other that he's, he's added in some spermidine, some powders of various kinds like if you're doing all of this stuff at once 
it's really, really hard to work out what exactly is causing the given effect that you're seeing. So say, you know, say he has become biologically younger. Let's, you know, assume that for the moment that we can quibble about that as well, because you know, as a scientist, I can quibble about anything. But let's assume that he has got biologically younger. Which of those things is causing the effect? Well, the things we've got the best evidence for, there's exercise, there's, you know, although the specifics of what he's eating, he's eating more veg, he's eating more nuts, he's eating, you know, things that most of us could afford to eat a little bit more of. He's getting really good sleep. So maybe that's doing all of the work that we're actually seeing. And it could be that the supplements, you know, everything else that he's doing, it could even be having a negative effect and actually dragging his biological age uh, in the wrong direction. Or it could be that they're all cancelling out. Or that there are just so many different things that could be going on. And I really wish there was some way to try and pull together the work that biohackers are doing. Because it's really cool that these people are willing to you know, try stuff out on their body. And I think a lot of people would be willing to, to, to do that, particularly if they thought there was a greater benefit to science. Because if we could, you know, standardize what biohackers are doing to some extent, if we could make sure, you know, one of the problems is if I go online and I order, say, some rapamycin, it's a really common sort of biohacking drug to potentially slow down your aging. If I order it online from some online pharmacy, Am I even getting rapamycin? Am I getting the amount that it says on the tin? I just don't really know. And that's one of the reasons why it's very hard to do without having a doctor involved. And so if you could create a clinical trial situation, it wouldn't be as sort of formalized as a classic clinical trial, but where you could make sure the biohackers are getting the amount of the drug they think they're getting and that sort of stuff. And then start to look at some of the results. It's not going to be conclusive, but it would allow us to get some kind of idea. And I know that scientists are looking into this. There was recently a paper that came out that was basically a survey of biohackers using rapamycin. And it was asking things like, you know, how much are you taking? What, what, what's your dose interval, for example? Are you taking it every day? Are you taking it once a week? Are you taking it once a month? And so on and so on. And these are interesting sort of preliminary steps to trying to turn this from something that's very arbitrary and very hard to draw uh, useful information from to something that's useful. So I really, you know, would like to see this kind of stuff be done. Um, the other thing to say is that, as I said, right at the top of uh, you know of the podcast, I'm sort of amazed by how much publicity Brian's got. It's, it's, it's sort of cool. But on the flip side, the way that that publicity comes out to most people, I think, is this is some this is weird. Like I don't want my kids' blood injected into me. I don't want to be living this incredibly rigid lifestyle, always going to bed at the exact same time, and always eating literally the same food every day, and so on and so on. And I think if you can present this in a way that's and it's more about optimizing health there, there are loads of ways you can sort of soften this and not make it seem so crazy and i guess that brian's marketing team have worked out that there is a hardcore of people who may not adopt brian's lifestyle in full perhaps just because it's too expensive and they haven't got all the free time he's got but they might be willing to take on enough of it to pay for a product and that's how they're going to make their money whereas if i were optimizing rather than for uptake of blueprint as a product i was optimizing for sort of positive publicity of longevity and good scientific results i think i'd do things a little bit differently I wonder, what is your sort of honest opinion then on the biohacking community at large? Because there seems to be a lot of information out there. It's hard to tell what's good info and what is, as we've talked about, what is absolute nonsense. And I think for me um, and my best friend Joe who runs this podcast with me, we started getting interested in this space um, when we first interviewed David Sinclair. Um, someone who I, you know, I, I trust a lot of what he's saying, and you know, guys like Andrew Huberman, I, I, I'm a fan of. But then, you know, there are people that I don't think you'll mind me saying this, but I was talking to Joe the other day, and when we were younger, he bought a book by Dave Asprey, mm. um, and now uh, Joe was saying he he doesn't know how that book was ever allowed to be published because a lot of it yeah. seems like complete nonsense, even to people like us that don't really know a lot. What advice would you give on sort of discerning good information from bad information? Who can we trust in this space? 
it is really really hard and i think it's it's best not to like trust specific individuals it's it's all about trusting the methods and that's this is where science can really shine because you know the, the, there's there's a there's a challenge here there's a trade-off because um you know we if we're going to look to optimizing all of our longevity there is going to come a point where you can't wait for every single last piece of evidence to be in because as a scientist you could say look I'm not going to prescribe any drug for longevity until we've done a 100-year clinical trial. We're going to get a bunch of 20-year-olds and we're going to start these various different things and we're going to watch them and it's going to be super safe and we're going to fully understand exactly what's going on. The problem is, you know, I'm in my late 30s, so I haven't got time for that experiment to, to pan out. And if you're in your 60s, if you're in your 70s, again, the calculus might change again. So there's sort of that aspect as well. But if we're going to talk about, you know, what would that, that would be the dream scientific experiment, you know, decades long uh, randomized trial. But there are various sort of standards of evidence. And some of these things have been you know, put through the evidence mill in that way. So, for example, vitamin supplements, you can look for the gold standard um, scientific trial, which is actually not even a trial. It's called a systematic review. And so if you if you're particularly interested in a supplement, it might be worth just Googling, you know, blah, 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 systematic review. And th- what that shows you then is scientists they do these trials they do these randomized trials but then if there have been enough trials done on a particular topic then some other scientists can pull all of those trials together and say well these ones you know maybe they were funded by industry maybe they look dodgy for some other reason and so we can sort of reduce the effect of those trials and we can mix all of those together combine them into the single best possible answer that we can give for these things and actually for a lot of vitamin supplements we've got huge huge amounts of data we've got hundreds of thousands of people involved sort of cumulatively in these systematic reviews and we know that unless you've got a specific vitamin deficiency, of course, then they've effectively got no effect on lifespan. In fact, some of them can even reduce how long we think you might live. So, you know, it's, it's definitely worth searching for those things. However, there is then this hierarchy of evidence. You know, not everything has a systematic review. Some stuff is too, too cutting edge. Some stuff has never been tried in humans. And so the next best thing after a systematic review is one of these randomized trials I talk about. And this is where you want to do a trial where the only difference between people getting the drug or getting the treatment or doing whatever it is and not getting the drug or treatment or whatever it is, is randomness. And that's because, for example, let's let's take exercise as an example. Um, it's if if you look at exercise, like what's the difference in health outcomes between people who get a lot of exercise and people who get less? Clearly, people who get a lot of exercise get more. However, if you were to do this study, what's called observationally, which is sort of easy mode way of doing this, you just look at how much exercise people do. But there are probably differences between the people who get a lot of exercise and the people who get less that aren't captured just in the fact they're exercising or not so you know i might get quite a lot of exercise why do i do that well i've got a very flexible job i'm an author you know go on podcasts so if i need to take an hour out in the middle of the day and go for a run not a problem but if you've got a you know stressful shift work you can't always find that time uh there might be wealth differences and we know that's a huge difference in lifestyle we know that people who are exercising they, they might be interested in their health in other ways they might be you know trying to eat well they might be doing various things and so the difference between exercising and non-exercising in an observational study will probably be larger than the difference between exercising and not exercising in a randomized trial now for exercise we've got enough evidence you know we've got randomized trials we've got systematic reviews i can tell you exercising is good for you don't worry but it's just sort of a really intuitive example where you can see why just doing an observational study where you just look at what people are doing and again it's the same with the rapamycin you might say oh you know people who take rapamycin seem to be healthier on average but they're all these biohacking nuts you know in the nicest possible way to biohackers you guys care a lot about your health that's you know that's why you're biohacking and so you're probably exercising you're probably eating a reasonable diet like you might be making mistakes in doing that you know in, in optimizing on the wrong things sometimes but you're probably doing better than the average member of the population who's you know eating whatever they eat and not getting enough exercise as we know from surveys so there's this sort of hierarchy of evidence 
and you know that's that's the ultimate way to look at go and look out at things and also just to see if there's a consensus among the fields so if you've got a particular person recommending supplement x i mean obviously the first thing you can do is check they haven't got some kind of conflict of interest are they running a company that sells supplement x that's obviously you know a bit of a red flag i should say you know it doesn't always mean that that supplement doesn't work because at the end of the day we do need pharmaceutical companies we do need companies selling supplements to get this stuff out to the public but it does always mean that you know you should try and look for a bit more corroborative evidence if you find yourself in that situation looking at that sort of thing so it's but the, you know the ultimate answer is it's just really really tough because you know even i as a sort of quote-unquote longevity expert if i see a paper on a given supplement I've, you know, I might not ever have heard of that thing. I might have to go and do a load of background research before I can even find out if the mechanism is plausible. And then reading scientific papers is a skill in itself. So I think you've just got to, you know, as best you can look for a diversity of opinion. You can look at this hierarchy of evidence where things have been studied enough. So systematic reviews are best. Random, you know, meta-analyses are sort of a rung below. Randomized controlled trials are the next thing down. And observational studies don't have no value, but they're only, they're sort of indicative rather than cut and dried. And then, yeah, just looking for a diversity of scientists recommending something and particularly looking for conflicts of interest. But it's tough. And I think we need to get better at this. I think ultimately we need regulators to get better at stepping in. We need you know doctors to be a bit more familiar with this stuff so they can help out, um, help people make these kinds of decisions and so on and so on. So it's not, a, not an easy problem to solve, unfortunately. Do you think that the quest for longevity amongst biohackers comes from an insecurity around immortality? <sighs> That is a good question. And I suspect the answer for some of them is yes, because, you know, I think there are, you know, people are terrified of dying sometimes. Um, but I, I'm sure that's not universal. Like, I'm, am I scared of death? I mean, I'm not particularly scared of death because I won't exist afterwards. It's not going to be a very big deal for me. I don't want to die. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm happy living. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I'm happy for my family and friends. You know, I assume they'll be sad. I hope they'll be sad <laughs> if, if, I, if I pass. But um, I think there are a variety of different motivations. I want to stay as healthy and active as long as possible and i think yeah there are just loads of different reasons you can do it. i think some people are just sort of fascinated by the biology that's another thing you can easily find yourself like going down these rabbit holes um and self-experimentation can just be fun and intriguing as long as you know you're not putting yourself at any risk so i think there are probably a variety of motivations i'm, I'm sure some of it's Im immortality or terror or whatever it might be but I, i'm sure there are a lot of other motivations out there too <laughs> one thing i really wanted to ask you about um it was really cool to see um someone with a platform like chris hemsworth um mm. talk about you know longevity on a massive platform like disney plus um and it, it was a massive hit i saw it you know all over social media for weeks afterwards and you know people taking you know um clips and bits of advice from it but i remember watching it and thinking like this is really cool this is really interesting to me but i wonder how much of this is is sound and how someone who you know, researches this field would look at it. Because for me, I was thinking, okay, there's a lot of advice I may, I may be able to take here, but I always had in the back of my mind that, you know, this is this is a guy that I would assume is probably taking a little bit more than, you know, protein powder to get the physique that he's got. So I, 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 was, I was taking it with a, with a pinch of salt, but I wonder for someone like you that is so immersed in this field, how do you reflect on uh, Chris Hemsworth documentary? Yeah, I've got a sort of strong ambivalence, just like with the Brian Johnson stuff, actually. Not not as extreme in this case, because he's not recommending anything quite as crazy. 
and um but nonetheless it's just it's, it's a huge thing as you say it was really exciting to see longevity covered in that way in the popular media and to see someone just talking about the idea of living longer the idea of living healthier not as some weird kooky thing that a bunch of biohackers were going to go and sort of watch them like a human zoo here's someone you know honestly um earnestly trying to do their best for their life and their health i think that was a really exciting thing to see I think the challenge is, um, well, the challenge is the challenges. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Every single episode was centered around this idea of a sort of big, exciting challenge that Chris Hemsworth had to do. There was one episode where he fasted for three days. There was another episode where he shimmied. I can't even remember how many meters it was up this enormous rope dangling over a canyon. Like, this was cool telly. This was really exciting, big scale cinematic stuff. But you know, although the, the, this episode where he was shimmying up a rope above a canyon was ostensibly, I think it was called strength, and it was about the importance of strength training and maintaining your muscle mass as you get older. Like, ultimately, it was it was hard to come up with a concrete takeaway for the normal person who isn't trying to do this ridiculous challenge where they, they hoist themselves up by the strength of their arms on a rope above a canyon. So I think it's, again, it's one of those things where you just want to see um, I, I wish they spent a bit more time talking about the promise of longevity science more broadly and not making it all about the health advice. Because one of the things that I talk about whenever I'm asked on a podcast, I always get asked about health advice. And that's completely natural because people want to know what can I do now? You know, I don't want to know about all this pie in the sky science. It's hopefully going to come to pass someday. And there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. You know, I wouldn't dismiss the question at all. But I think the best piece of health advice that I can give, and it sounds slightly weird, is to try and raise the profile of aging biology because you know you can fast you can um eat well you can exercise you can do all of these things and some of them are, some of them are better, some of them are better than others in terms of sort of bang for your buck but ultimately the thing that's going to make most of us who are you know middle-aged or younger live the longest is if we get progress in this in aging biology it's if we understand the drugs that can keep us healthier for longer and that means that if we live long enough to benefit from those drugs we can then hopefully live a bit longer and allow further drugs to be developed that will allow us to live longer still and I think there's this sort of huge positive feedback process that's going on there. And what therefore made me a little bit upset about um, Limitless was that it didn't dwell so much on that longevity science. It sort of talked a lot about um, various bits of health advice. It talked a lot about, um, you know, th these exciting big challenges, but it didn't really make a great deal of the science that was going on. I think the best episode of the whole series was the very last episode, which is an episode called Acceptance. And this has this um, slightly bizarre premise. They put Chris Hemsworth in an old an old man suit. It's especially designed by some scientists to try and simulate for someone in their 30s or 40s what it's like to be an older person. So he had all these bits of elastic, sort of meaning his muscle movement was restricted and things were a bit harder to do. He had some scratched up glasses on basically to sort of simulate cataracts and the loss of vision as you get older. Um, he had his hearing a bit blocked up so he couldn't hear quite as well and so on and so on. And this old person suit, not only did they stick him in that, but they then put him in an actual old people's home, you know, inhabited by a bunch of actual old people who didn't need the suit um, and left him in there for a few days before finally getting to the point of his death and he attended his own funeral. And it was, you know, that sounds like it could be quite mawkish, it could be a bit sentimental, but actually it was a really good episode, I thought, because one of the things um, I realised writing Ageless is that for people our age, it's really, really hard to get exposed to ageing. Um, into in, you know, the actual realities of what it's like to get old so a statistic that really struck me was that the average age of someone caring for someone else over the age of 65 is 63 and what that means is that most people who are caring for someone over 65 they might be a spouse you know caring for their their ailing husband or wife they're often uh like a kid caring for their parents but obviously if their parents are in their 80s or 90s then that kid is already in their 60s themselves and so 
you know, if you're in your 30s and your parents are taking care of their parents, for example, you know, you can hear the stories and you can hear how bad it is, but you just don't see the day-to-day. And I thought what that episode did was just, in a really beautiful way, exposed what it means to be old and exposed that reality. And I think acceptance is a, you know, it was a great thing to call it as well, because it's a really important thing. You know, although I want to stay healthy as long as possible, one of the things that's going to stop me being healthy as long as possible is if I'm stressed out about the prospect of one day aging, because it is going to happen. So I think that acceptance is important. And so I really, really loved that episode. I thought it was a beautiful end to the series. So yeah, mixed feelings. I wish there'd been a bit more aging biology, but there was, it was really great just to see longevity getting that platform. People these days, or especially in the sort of personal development space and the sort of friends that, I've, that, that I have that you know, like to think about topics like this, people have become, become obsessed with metrics. Um, they like to measure everything they can, uh, you know, obsessed with numbers. There seems to be so many different markers you could focus on, you know, your sleep score, your steps, your resting heart rate, your max heart rate. There, there's so many things to, to, you know, be concerned about. We can't keep track of them all. It, you know, it's impossible. I, I've tried my best, you know, to, to, to keep a, a mindful eye on all of these things. What are the most important numbers to be focused on if any for the average day person i think that's uh, yeah that's a really fascinating thing and i actually made a few youtube videos that go into a bit of depth about this because there is just so much to talk about with these wearables and i actually became fascinated just you know starting to track my own health when i got my my first watch was only a couple of years ago and i just got really sort of deep into it not only because the the, the science is fascinating and how, how they work is actually really fascinating as well how they can use this sort of flashing green light on your wrist to monitor your heart rate 24 7 really cool science and i made a really fun youtube video with uh, with steve mold about that so do go and check that out if you're interested um and i think well, actually all of the metrics have some merit but i think the one that's probably the most important for me is resting heart rate and that in itself has some caveats associated with it so what's your resting heart rate well your resting heart rate is your heart rate when you're not doing anything i guess it's obvious when you're resting but what that means is that when you're awake and you've been sat still for you know, maybe five minutes whatever your heart rate drifts down to during that time that is your resting heart rate and that's how it's conventionally defined and that's how it's been measured in lots of medical studies that have shown us how important your resting heart rate is so the reason we think this is super important is we've got decades and decades of studies um, where people with a lower resting heart rate live longer they get less heart disease which i guess you know, seems obvious they've got a healthier heart but they even get less cancer less dementia these things aren't so obviously heart related than people who have a higher resting heart rate so clearly there's something important going on here um, and that's something that actually the watches are relatively good at measuring because this this flashing light thing it can be confused by various things it can be confused by changing ambient lights so if you're you know out running on a really sunny day and your watch is moving up and down your arm and it's sort of flickering sunlight on your arm for example that can confuse the watches and they can be less accurate some of them are quite bad at catching rapid changes in heart rate so if you're someone who likes interval training then your watch can often be a bit delayed or perhaps even just completely miss a particular peak heart rate that you get to um, it's just much more technically challenging to measure this thing as you're sort of absolutely going for it on an interval and your watch is jumping up and down your arm you know <laughs> i'd hate to be the guy who has to write the algorithm to try and pick out the heart rate data and all that sort of mess but in resting heart rate they can be super accurate at this because you're, you know you're sat still you're probably in fairly constant light um and so they're much much more accurate picking that thing up so i think that's a really good metric to follow not only because we know it's got these sort of decades long studies that show us that people with resting heart rates that are lower live longer get less disease but also because it's really easy to measure However, there's a caveat, and I made a whole video on this because I was really shocked when I um when I first started testing these things for my for my channel. Um, I got uh, a Mi Band, which is just this thirty quid 
uh, thing that you can get off you know it's very very cheap fitness tracker i thought it'd be interesting to try like the absolute bargain basement and see how that does i already owned a fitbit that was just the first one that i got and i managed to borrow an apple watch because that's obviously one that a lot of people have it's a really high-end sort of piece of equipment and it's not just a fitness tracker you know it's a real smart watch you can do all kinds of stuff if you have an iphone which i don't um, but nonetheless you know so these are three very different products and i actually found fascinatingly that the resting heart rate values differed wildly between these three watches so the the mi band and the fitbit both gave me a resting heart rate in the sort of low to mid 50s and that means that I, you know that's that's fairly fit i'm fairly happy with that that's cool but the apple watch i think it told me my resting heart rate was 43 beats per minute now this puts me in the sort of elite athlete brackets this is you know am i an olympic sprinter am i a, you know olympic cyclist can probably go below that but nonetheless you know it's it's it'll be pretty exceptional given that i you know go for a run a few times a week if i've managed to get my resting heart rate down into the 40s so what's going on here well, it turns out that an awful lot of these devices, um, Apple, Garmin, Whoop, Aura, report your resting heart rate. And I use that in sort of air quotes for anyone who's listening along on the podcast. Uh, they, they give you a resting heart rate while you're asleep. And a lot of them even proudly declare this on their website. They're like, your resting heart rate is measured while you are sleeping. And this is not the conventional definition of resting heart rate because your resting heart rate is normally taken while you're awake. And it means that you get this sort of unnaturally flattering view of what your resting heart rate is. So if you're you know, down at the gym with your mates and you're comparing the results from your watch, it might be, you know, say I'm a Fitbit user and I'm comparing with my friend who's got a Garmin, they'll be like, oh, my resting heart rate's, you know, 48. And I'll be like, oh, my resting heart rate's 53 on my Fitbit. Um, it might be that I'm fitter than them. I have a better resting heart rate than them. But their garmin is reporting it while they're asleep and my sleeping heart rate would then be lower than theirs would be um so there's, there's all these kinds of nuances in how these numbers can be interpreted what i think is the most important thing about all the numbers from these devices whether you're looking at steps whether you're looking at sleep duration whether you're looking at heart rate you know even whether you're looking at some of the more derived metrics like vo2 max which aren't directly measured but they're sort of inferred from other measurements it's not the absolute value it's the trend of what's going on with these things and i was really surprised actually i didn't know this that resting heart rate can vary from day to day and from week to week depending on you know, how much exercise you're doing are you stressed i remember when i got covid for the first time i was just intrigued watching my resting heart rate absolutely spike <laughs> as i came down with a fever it's really fascinating um just you know seeing how these things change on a day-to-day -day basis i sort of thought it was something that changed over years as you got older but it really is remarkable how fast these things can respond and so watching those trends is really, really useful. Because if you notice, oh, you know, this week I only got 8,000 steps a day and I normally get 10,000, maybe you should have a bit of a think about what's going on. Or if you notice that your resting heart rate's popped up a bit, maybe you're a little bit ill or maybe you've just, you know, you aren't training quite so much or you know, maybe, maybe there's all kinds, you know, might be a bit stressed. There are all kinds of things that could be uh, going on in your life. And it just gives you the opportunity to see that data and introspect. So I think the, the critical thing to take away from this, um, by all means, you know, go and watch my videos and I sort of dig into these things in a bit more depth. But the crucial thing is to look at trends and don't necessarily trust the absolute values. Um, just to say one more thing about resting heart rate that I think is super intriguing. I actually think that sleeping heart rate might turn out to be a better measure of health than resting heart rate. And there are a few different reasons for this. Um, the first is that actually, although we say resting heart rate is really well defined, I think my resting heart rate varies you know this, this is just sort of anecdotal you can if you get one of these you know get a smartwatch you can see this happening in real time if i sit down for five minutes and i've just been for a run half an hour ago my resting heart rate is often quite a lot higher than it would be if i've just woken up in the morning or just before i'm about to go to bed at night when obviously my hormones are all they've got me in chill out mode essentially and um so it's not necessarily representative depending on what time of day it is depending on all kinds of things and i know this has happened to me in the doctor when i've gone on like um gone when you go and register for a new gp they often do various things and test your blood pressure and test your heart rate i remember i went to register for a gp once 
and uh, the nurse called me and she was like oh you know mr Steele, can you come and uh, have your have your have your stuff measured and i had my folding bike with me and i picked it up and i sprinted down the corridor to her office and then she measured my blood pressure and she was like wow you've got your heart rate is like 80 <laughs> are you all right and i was like well yeah you just maybe run down the corridor with a 10 kilo folding bike of course my heart rate's a bit higher than normal it's not like this at home trust me so clearly resting heart rate is quite a you know it, it's very context dependent maybe the doctor didn't quite wait five minutes or you know whatever it might be whereas sleeping heart rate not only is it something it's an environment where things are much more physiologically consistent um because you know you're you're, you're deep asleep hopefully you've been asleep for a few hours you can imagine there are far fewer of these variables that can be going on obviously you can have noise or all kinds of things that can make the sleep environment inconsistent but it does feel more consistent than just choosing a random time of day and sitting down for five minutes and secondly sleep is the time when these things are these watches they're the most accurate you're staying almost completely still it's it's dark obviously so there's no ambient light to confuse the sensor I think this probably will turn out to be the best place to the best way to measure your health ultimately at least from heart rate there are going to be other measurements as well but um the the real challenge is that we haven't got the data to say oh if you've got a sleeping heart rate of x then your risk of death is y and the reason we haven't got that data is until smartwatches were invented and this is you know remember the, the first fitbit was coming out in the 2010s i think and, and even the first fitbit didn't measure your heart rate that's quite a recent innovation um then what you've got is a complete inability to measure people's heart rate at night without some really expensive really faffy hospital equipment you know you'd have to sort of wire someone up with an ecg and send them to bed and that just isn't practical if you're studying thousands of people so i think now we're at this unique point in history where you know millions of us are walking around with a little heart rate tracker on our arms and i'll be really fascinated to see what happens over the next 5 10 you know 20 years as we watch those of us who have this sleeping heart rate data i think it might well as i say turn out to be the best metric we just don't know the answer to that yet Yes, it's a it's a really good number to be mindful of, but I think a lot of people can become victim of becoming too obsessed with it. Um, mm. I've got a really extreme case of it because um, I have a Fitbit, don't have one on now because um, uh, when I used to work in the gym, um, a colleague of mine um, just suddenly passed it. He had a heart attack, died, and I think that was sort of in the back of my mind. He was a fitness instructor, he was really healthy like me and I, I remember it sort of being like a wake up call to me and a couple of weeks later um, I was in the gym and I convinced myself that I was having a I thought I was having a heart attack turned out mm. to be a panic attack okay but I'd never experienced one before so I was like like I genuinely thought you know it was the end for me sort of thing yeah. um, and I was going back and forth to doctors a lot um, you know getting them to test my blood pressure blah 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 and um, the nurse uh, whenever she took my blood pressure or heart rate, it would be higher and I'd always be concerned. But she said, like, she was saying that it was because I'd become too obsessed with the number mm. that as soon as she started testing it, the heart rate would just, like, start increasing. So it was never, like, a flat number. It was always moving yeah. because as soon as she put the strap on my arm or as soon as she it felt my pulse, my heart rate would start moving because I was thinking, right, what if it's bad? What if it's bad? Then mm-hmm. that means X, Y, Z. And it kept going up and up. And um, <clears throat> I... I was just back and forth. I was in this bad spiral of I'd be walking on the street and I'd be like holding my pulse and I'd go working out and thinking, shit, that's high, that's really mm-hmm. high. But then I've sort of learned now that that was all because I was so obsessed or so scared of the number being high that it was actually giving me sort of like a false representation of what the number was. And um, I sort of, I, I, I went to therapy for a while and I was speaking with someone and, and they told me that for now it was best to not have a watch on at all because it was sort of having an adverse effect. 
Yeah, and I think there's a really fascinating example of this, actually. There was a study done where they got a bunch of people with various different kinds of sleep, you know, good sleepers and bad sleepers, basically. And then they got their, what they told them all to wear watches. But unbeknownst to them, they told the app that was connected to the watch to lie occasionally. And so, for example, you might have a great night's sleep, absolutely perfect, you know, 100% sleep score or whatever it would be. But the watch would say, oh, you only slept for six and a half hours and it was quite disturbed and blah, blah, blah. And what they found was that people had been given that negative feedback felt more tired even though they'd have a perfectly good night's sleep and conversely if you've had a bad night's sleep the people who are given evidence saying oh you've had eight hours it's perfect you shut eye you know you had all your deep all your REM all these things that they report they felt better about themselves so clearly there's that sort of feedback and I think it's also just important to realize exactly as you say it's, it's sort of a process of introspection and realizing when you're obsessed with these numbers and I know you know it definitely can happen um, thankfully, I've always been like quite neutral about it, and I, I guess it depends what your numbers are as well. You know, if your if your numbers are up, my my heart rate's usually in the fifties, like that isn't panic inducing. But I can imagine if I put one of these things on for the first time and I measure it for a week, and you know my resting heart rate was in the eighties or nineties, that isn't something to panic about. And it's something you, as as we as we just said, you know, it's something you can improve over quite a short period of time actually just by starting a bit of exercise, by improving your diet, by you know fairly basic health advice. But I can see why that could start to be panic inducing, and so absolutely you've got to be aware that. Yeah, quantifying stuff can't always isn't necessarily always a good thing. I think the one flip side I'd say to that is that um, the an advantage of these watches is that because they are looking at you literally twenty four seven, they aren't so prone to the stress. Because if you're having a bit of a moment, you're walking down the street, you're taking your pulse, and obviously your pulse is going to be elevated because you're stressed about it in that context. But the watch is going to be looking at it when you're you know watching TV or just thankfully you've been distracted from whatever the stress might be, even if that stress is the watch itself. And so hopefully that allows them to be a bit more accurate. But obviously, yeah, if you start noticing yourself obsessing over the sleep numbers, which arguably Brian Johnson is doing, you know, there are a variety of times you just go, you know, maybe it's better to take the watch off. You know, I've got a bit. You don't have to have that data literally 24-7 for it to be useful, I don't think. You can get a sort of baseline. You can find out what your numbers are. Then just take the watch off for a month, you know, try a few things, stick it on for another week. There are so many different ways of doing it. And I think it's just like understanding you don't need to get every single second of data i think that's probably the place where my psychology falls down because i'm a massive nerd i'm like i literally need to know my heart rate every minute of every day and so you're like putting on the watch 30 seconds after you get out of the shower just to make sure you don't miss a second i sort of feel myself doing that and i'm like andrew just chill out just yeah, just leave it I th- and I, you can really see how these things yeah can have a, an interesting psychological effect and it just depends on your own makeup and you've got to be aware and try and uh, use them responsibly like any tool how accurate can sleep trackers actually be? I, I I have a hard time believing that they give a real accurate reflection of you know your you sleep and and again we talk about people you know they become obsessed with their sleep score mm. and I read a lot and I've seen a lot of videos about how they they they're not really as close to being accurate as people think. Yeah, I think again it depends on the number that you look at. I think these sleep scores are often slightly hocus pocus to be honest. Because you, some some manufacturers aren't even very clear about how they're calculated those scores. Um, I think one thing we do know is that how long you sleep is pretty important. Unfortunately, this is one of those things where we've only got to go back to that hierarchy of evidence I was talking about earlier. We've only got the observational studies here, and so we know that observationally, if people get you know four, five, six hours sleep a night, they tend to be less healthy. They tend to live less long than people who get seven or eight hours sleep a night. And actually interesting, something that's not often reported is that it's worse if you sleep too long. So if you're sleeping nine or 10 hours a night, you're actually at higher risk than someone who's sleeping five or six hours a night. But the problem is, um, again, it's like disentangling cause and effect. Like those people who are sleeping 10 hours a night 
are they doing it because they love sleep and they're super lazy or whatever it might be or are they doing it because they've got an underlying health condition which means they're exhausted all the time so you know it's a very tricky thing and similarly you know those people are sleeping five hours a night are they less healthy because they're sleeping five hours a night or are they less healthy because they've got a really stressful job or they do shift work or they've got like screaming kids that's you know keeping them up at all hours and so on and so on and therefore it's really hard to you know disentangle cause and effect here but i think we do know enough to say that you know you should probably be aiming for seven to eight hours and actually the, the sleep duration is the metric on which these watches are most accurate because all they've got to go on you've got to think about this you know this this watch is on the end of your arm it's got your heart rate it's got your movement because they normally have an accelerometer and that's the way that they count the steps or they're counting the accelerations that your arm is making and so they basically assume if you're quite still and your heart rate drops a bit you're probably asleep it's a bit more complicated than that and the algorithms aren't really fully uh, public but that's basically what they're doing and as a result i think they are actually fairly good at tracking sleep but again, there's this frustrating like lack of consistency between devices. So I'm currently wearing a Garmin, um, and that didn't make it into the video of my first comparison because I didn't own the watch at the time. But I spent a while, I spent actually about a month wearing both the Garmin and the Fitbit at the same time just to sort of compare them. That's a, that video is uh, coming soon on the channel. But one thing that I really noticed was the difference in sleep duration. And I haven't looked at, um, I haven't drawn a graph yet, which is what I'll go on to do and like, understand wh where these differences crop up. But it seems that the Garmin consistently reports that I slept longer than the Fitbit did. And I think where the difference comes in is if you look at the graph that the Fitbit provides you, it shows you these sort of momentary, uh, like fra maybe fractions of a minute where you're awake during the night. And this is a known phenomenon. This is something that if you actually wire your brain up to a, a proper you know, sleep scoring device, you actually do, it's called polysomnography. So they measure your sleep with a variety of metrics. There is movement. There's, there are these little things that measure the movement of your eye muscles. So it's this really you know, high-tech bit of lab equipment. If you use a poly, polysomnograph, I guess it's called, <laughs> if you use one of these bits of lab equipment, then what you find is people do have these sort of micro-awakenings. And the, the Garmin seems to just either not see those or ignore them or its algorithm is, isn't able to pick them up. But as a result, I might um, you know, get again a perfectly good night's sleep and my fitbit will tell me i've slept seven and a half hours and my garmin will tell me i've slept eight hours and ten minutes and you know which of those is true i think again it's important to look at the trend if you're if you have a really normal week you have a great week's sleep everything's fine you're not feeling tired during the day etc etc and your particular brand of watch says you've got seven hours 45 minutes or says you've got eight hours 15 that's probably a good baseline for you whatever that number might be and we know that you know different people have just naturally different amounts of sleep they need as well I think it's important to be honest with yourself because a lot of us can survive on six hours a night even though that isn't going to be optimal for our health but you know if you have a normal week you're feeling fairly good you can get yourself a baseline and then you can base things off that because the absolute numbers do seem to differ quite a bit between watch brands but in terms of just measuring the overall time sort of in bed lying still um that they, they seem to be relatively good at that so i think that's probably the best way is, you know, do treat these numbers with a grain of salt but once you've got a baseline you can sort of see how things go relative to that last thing I wanted to ask you about um, before we start to wrap up um, is in the personal development space that I see a lot that people love this idea of, of blue zones it, mm. you know it's a really nice idea to be able to point to something and say this is the model to follow um, you know the evidence is you know it's clear these guys have the longer life expectancy I can't remember if it was in your book or on a podcast I heard you mention a sort of correlation between um, life expectancy and pension fraud mm. um, how do you uh, what is your view now on, on, on the blue zones and you know is it just a nice idea rather than you know a, a practical model to follow yeah this is another one where I've got this sort of deep ambivalence about the whole concept 
uh, because I think that well, it, f f the first thing to say is if you ask longevity researchers, you know, where are the places where people live longest in the world? What they'll say is it's the place with the worst uh, birth records. And that's because if you live, you know, if you live in some place and you've got to remember if someone say someone claims they live to 120, if they're 120 today, they were born in the sort of 1900s. And what that means is they were born a long time ago and there aren't that many countries in the world that had really great, you know, birth and death records in the early 20th century. So that's you know already a problem and so longevity researchers are really interested in the places where they can really corroborate carefully how long people have lived especially the exceptionally old so that's the first thing to bear in mind um but then if you look at those blue zones there's this this fascinating study by a guy called saul newman who's an academic at oxford university and he dug into the data around a blue zone uh, it's called okinawa which is um, this island off the south coast of Japan. It's this sort of, it's kind of a tropical paradise, really. And so it's cited as a blue zone. There are various reasons um, put forward for this. It seems to have far more centenarians than the rest of the country. That's people who make it to the age of over 100. And we've already said those are the ones to be particularly suspicious of. Um, but its overall life expectancy isn't that much greater than the rest of Japan. So that was the first thing that sort of set off some red flags for me. I was a bit like, you know, why are these people only living one or two years longer? Not nothing. I'd, I'd happily live one or two years longer and healthy. That's great if, that, if there's some evidence for it. But then he started digging into the actual sort of demographic statistics and the statistics about, um, you know, the, the various lifestyle factors. And one example, the people of Okinawa are thought to live a long time because they consume an awful lot of this purple sweet potato, which is a particular vegetable that's found on the island of Okinawa. It's a local delicacy. And so they're eating huge amounts of this. And it's thought they, you know, it was quite a poor island historically, and so they didn't tend to eat a huge amount of food. What they ate, a lot of it was this nutrient-dense, delicious, you know, purple sweet potato. They probably did a bit of calorie restriction, and we know that that's something that might have an effect on longevity. It certainly seems that if you eat a bit less, you tend to live a bit longer. We know a lot of that from animal studies and so maybe that's what's going on and then the blue zones hypothesis is that it then sort of broadens this out to um, sort of idealize their whole lifestyle because they've got a sense of community you know the older people are still involved in stuff they're not just isolated away in a care home um, their lifestyle is very mobile so they're not necessarily exercising quote unquote as you know you and i might do and not, not going out for a run not going down to the gym but they are every day getting walking in they're walking to the other side of the village to meet their friends they're you know lugging um lugging stuff around like going and getting their shopping and carrying it home and that sort of thing so all this sort of incidental exercise in their daily life now all of that sounds potentially good but what Saul found was that when you dig into the actual statistics, um, the thing that's most the thing that is most exceptional about the diet of Okinawans is that they are the biggest consumers in all of Japan of spam. <laughs> now, for any non-UK listeners, spam is this sort of tinned meat um, that was very popular during the Second World War. One of the reasons it might be so widely eaten on Okinawa is because um, there's a, there's a huge US military base there for sort of historical reasons. Um, they're also got the highest level of smoking in the country. So you're thinking, you know, is smoking supposed to be good for us as well? Like, what, what can that possibly mean? And his hypothesis, therefore, is that what all of these things show us, you know, eating a lot of spam, smoking, these are all correlated with poverty. And it's also a very poor part of Japan. So imagine you're, you know, your mum's 80 and you're her daughter and your mum dies. But, you know, there aren't particularly good birth, birth or death records on this island. So maybe somehow it goes a little bit unnoticed. You might carry on going to the pension office. And trying to claim your pension or either your mum's pension in her name as yourself and so according to the national records then you know say you're 60 when this happens you might live another 20 years and so therefore according to the national statistics you made it to 100 but essentially not because anyone actually did make it to 100 but because of pension fraud there are two 80 year olds and some pension fraud so that makes it really really challenging to sort of disentangle what's going on here and i think that that's probably going to be a huge component of it because these blue zones 
you know on top of being parts of the world where we've had all those things i've just mentioned you know there's, a, there's often good diet there's often a bit of incidental exercise there's often the sense of community all good things by the way but there's also there are also poorer parts of countries and places that are more isolated away from the rest of the country in a lot of cases um so the reason i'm ambivalent about this as i said at the top of my answer it's really frustrating because i think that a lot of the advice that's given from blue zones is probably broadly correct like i think we should probably all eat more nutrient-dense vegetable diets we probably should all be getting a bit more incidental exercise throughout the day rather than sitting hunched over our computers and staring at our phones and watching tv and all that kind of thing we probably would be good if we had a better sense of community because you know sometimes things do feel a bit atomized in the modern world but is the reason we should be doing all those things because we look at the blue zones and that's what seems to be working there i'm less sure that that's the truth so yeah i think there's this um it's a really hard thing to untangle all this sort of disentangle all this stuff about human populations because there are so many different diets and lifestyles and all kinds of different problems with like demographic record keeping in different parts of the world so i think honestly by the time we've sorted all this stuff out and all these arguments are settled we'll probably have cured aging medically <laughs> well man um what an enjoyable hour this has been i it's one of the most enjoyable episodes i can remember to date i really thoroughly enjoyed it and i'm so thankful you came back as I mentioned, it's been um, just over two years since you were on your last. You've done a lot since then. I've seen you rubbing shoulders with Russell Howard and my all-time dream podcast guest, Brian Cox. You were on the Infinite Monkey Cage, which is my favorite podcast of all time. So I'm uh, really glad you're not forgetting me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's just, um, it's been a wild ride. The book is still available if anyone wants to buy it, Ageless. And um, yeah, check out my YouTube channel where I'm trying to bring all this stuff a bit more up to date and you know, any updates in the science and all this stuff about smartwatches we've been talking about, a lot of that is uh, on the channel as well. Yeah, as you mentioned there, um, the book is still out. You oh, still I'm glad to see you haven't copy. forgotten that. You've still got a copy. Still got it. Yeah, two years later, still right here <laughs> nice. on my desk. Um, uh, yeah, I'll leave all the links below to, to check out the YouTube channel. Oh, thank you very much the most under undersubscribed youtube channel i uh i i think it's it's absolutely amazing in terms of you know the content on there is brilliant i, I loved you. every video you've done so far I, I wish you could uh wish you pushed even more out because they're that good so i encourage everyone to go over there uh links in the in the show notes below um where can they find you on social media where can they uh enjoy more twitter spats with uh, so, exactly yeah. i'm on twitter you can block me as at stato <laughs> i'm also on instagram as andrew j Steele. facebook and youtube i'm dr andrew Steele, all one word so just check those things out and uh, yeah see you there amazing well thank you again for joining me today it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for having me it's been a blast